take out your Bibles. We're in Amos chapter 5 this morning. We're going to cover the entire chapter, plus we have communion today, so we, we got to get busy and get working because we got second service coming up. <laughs> but I don't want you all to miss out on anything because I really believe that the Lord is, is going to speak a lot through this chapter this morning, and uh, we're going to have something that we can take home with ourselves uh, for that. Let's go ahead and ask the Lord to bless our study. Father, once again, we come to you um, in humble uh, humility, knowing that you are the one that we rely on for all that we need. Father, only what you give, give us is eternal and will last forever. So we pray this morning as we open up your word, that you would speak your truth to us, and that it would be that eternal truth that we need, Father God. We pray... Um, that we would be able to live out what we read here this morning. We pray that you would speak to our hearts, Lord. Wake us up in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the message is Seek the Lord and Live. And from that title, here's the thing. We are all, without the Lord, dead. Death is not a topic that people like to talk about. It is not uh, like in the top 10 conversations that people love to have. Death is not one of them. Of all the uh, social functions that you will go to and be a part of, nobody says funerals are what I love to go to. They're not a fun time. No one enjoys it, especially not the person for whom the funeral is for. Funerals are a time of mourning and pain, deep felt grief, perhaps missed opportunities. In the pain and grief, however, of a funeral, there is an openness that happens within people to hear about things that we don't usually like to speak of. The reality of death is one of those. How do you prepare for it? What are you preparing for? What comes after death? What happens when we die? Did we live good enough in our life that would alter our afterlife? We're open to evaluate our living also as, as we consider someone's life. I've been to a few funerals before and I've been to one where someone lived a life for themselves only and so their funeral had one or two people in it. In fact, the people that showed up were family members and they only showed up to make sure that he really died. I've been to another funeral in which it was held in a large sanctuary of a church and it was standing room only where people were lined up to tell of stories of how his life affected theirs. When we come to a funeral, we evaluate what will be spoken at our funeral, what's gonna happen there. Are we living correctly? What are we doing with our life? Well, this third message from Amos, it's sort of a funeral message. Imagine having your funeral message preached to you while you sit in the audience, though, and are still alive. That would be the message from Amos, and it would have been accompanied in the background. The music would be the funeral march. You know the funeral march, it goes dun, 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 dun. That is the funeral march. 
It is also used in the Imperial March, but I tell you that it originated from Chopin. It's a uh, funeral message that Amos gives declaring the death of the nation of Israel for its legal injustice and religious hypocrisy. But it is also offering life to individuals who would repent and seek him. This message from Amos comes by way of pushing to get the words out. Have you ever been so saddened over something you can't speak? There's been many times where I've had to try to share news and I just can't speak. And so you push the words out while trying to choke back the tears also. That's what Amos would have been going through. Lamenting over the pronounced judgment. Saying to himself, oh, that some would listen today. Oh, that some would listen and hear and turn to seek the Lord and live. And we turn to Amos, and I, and I remind us that we're going through a series called Majoring in the Minors, and what it's reminding us is that God still speaks today, and that what happened in ancient Israel and what happened in the Old Testament is still valid for today. Romans 15.4 says, For whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction, so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the Scriptures. You guys would start with me in Amos chapter 5, verse 1. It says, listen to this message that I am singing for you. A lament, house of Israel. She has fallen. Virgin Israel will never rise again. She lies abandoned on her land with no one to raise her up. For the Lord God says, the city that marches out a thousand strong will have only a hundred left. And the one that marches out a hundred strong will only have 10 left in the house of Israel. For the Lord says to the house of Israel, seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel or go to Gilgal or journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will certainly go into exile and Bethel will come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live or he will spread like fire throughout the house of Joseph. It will consume everything with no one at Bethel to extinguish it those who turn justice into wormwood also throw righteousness to the ground. The one who made Pleiades and Orion, who turned darkness into dawn and darkens day into night, who summons the water of the sea and pours it out over the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. He brings destruction on the strong and it befalls on the fortress. They hate the one who convicts the guilty at the city gate. They despise the one who speaks with integrity Therefore, because you trample on the poor and exact a, tax, a grain tax from him, you will never live in the houses of cut stone that you have built. You will never drink the wine from the lush vineyards you have planted. For I know your crimes are many and your sins innumerable. They oppress the righteous, take a bribe, deprive the poor of justice at the city gates. Therefore, those who have insight will keep silent at such a time, for the days are evil." Pursue good and not evil so that you may live. And the Lord, the God of armies, will be with you as you have claimed. Hate evil and love good. Establish justice at the city gate. Perhaps the Lord, the God of armies, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. 
Therefore, the Lord God of armies, the Lord says, there will be wailing in all the public squares. They will cry out in anguish in all the streets. The farmer will be called on to mourn and professional mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards for I will pass among you. The Lord has spoken. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. What will the day of the Lord be for you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be like a man who flees from a lion only to have a bear confront him. And he goes home and rests his hands against the wall only to have a snake bite him. Won't the day of the Lord be darkness rather than light? Even gloom without any brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fattened cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. House of Israel, Was it sacrifices and grain offerings that you presented to me during the 40 years in the wilderness? But you have taken up Succoth, your king, and Kaiwan, your star god, images you have made for yourselves. So I will send you into exile beyond Damascus. The Lord, the God of armies, is his name, and he has spoken. 27 verses of a funeral message for the nation of Israel. I'm going to break it down like this. The first thing we're going to look at is the song of death. The song of death. The first three verses. It's what Amos says. He says, listen to this message. And notice that he's going to deliver this message a different way. That I am singing for you. It's a lament, house of Israel. And here's, here's the words. So that way we can all sing it together. She has fallen... Virgin Israel will never rise again. She lies abandoned on her land with no one to raise her up. For the Lord God says, the city that marches out a thousand strong will have only a hundred left. And the one that marches out a hundred strong will only have 10 left in the house of Israel. Far different from the songs of praise that they would sing in the victory in which they would say, Saul has his thousands, David his tens of thousands. He's singing a message, but it's a message that Israel desperately needs to hear. It's a, it's a song. He calls it a lament. A lament is a dirge or a funeral song. It's a song of mourning composed and performed as a memorial to a dead person. But Amos is singing this song for Israel as a nation. If you remember at this time, however, Israel is doing quite well. They're very prosperous. They're, in, in their mind, there's nothing that is out of the reach of the grasp of the kingdom of Israel. There's no sign of sickness. There's no sign of defeat. She's enjoying the height of her life. For Amos to be lamenting over the death of Israel is a jarring thing to behold for those whose attention he actually managed to capture. Imagine being a listener in this crowd. It's one to be listening to your own obituary being read and thinking, wait, I'm not dead. Mark Twain wrote a letter to the New York Journal. 
He says, I can understand perfectly how the report of my illness got about. I have even heard on good authority that I was dead. James Ross Clemens, a cousin of mine, was seriously ill two or three weeks ago in London, but is well now. The report of my illness grew out of his illness. The report of my death was an exaggeration. That's what the people, as they hear, oh, the death of Israel, this guy's crazy. Look at this guy. He's just full of bad news. But Amos is speaking with absolute accuracy. It's not an exaggeration. Israel's funeral was coming. And here's the truth. The nation was judged and the nation is destined to die. She has fallen, suffered defeat, suffered failure, suffered ruin. Virgin Israel will never rise again. The pain of this judgment against Israel is the pain akin to a virgin woman in those days dying without bearing any children. It's a particularly tragic death. It's one in which we would say that someone died too soon. They died before their time. Israel thought they were young and full of life, but God sent a message saying, you're about to die. There is glory for the nations that rise up to stop a coming threat. A nation comes against another nation to conquer it and and take it over, and that nation defends itself, and maybe they lose the battle. But you know what? The annals of history will record their glory as they stood, dying in a glorious battle. Israel, however, would die in her own land, abandoned, with no one to raise her up, deserted by God himself as a judgment against the kingdom. The Lord has spoken. He says that they will suffer innumerable loss, for he will not deliver the nation any longer. And it's believed that an army can lose up to 50% of its force and still survive and still fight. God was telling him, you will lose 90%. 90% loss is a nation's death sentence. And Amos is lamenting that Israel will cease to exist. And it brings us to a truth that we have to understand that God's promises are irrevocable and eternal. But they are also conditional upon the obedience of those who receive them. For Israel, they're... they're Continued occupation of the land was conditional of following and obeying the covenant. So we have the song of death, but in that song of death, then we have the call to live. We have the call to live. Look at verses four through six. It says, for the Lord says to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel or go to Gilgal or journey to Beersheba, for Gilgal will certainly go into exile and Bethel will come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, or he will spread like fire throughout the house of Joseph. It will consume everything with no one at Bethel to extinguish it. So the dirge song, the funeral song, it was a a wonderful attention-capturing device And hopefully, like at most funerals, what people are open to hearing about is the promise of eternal life. A funeral reminds us that we all have one common destiny. 
That's death. It's our one undefeated enemy. It's our one foe that we have no idea what happens on the other side in and of ourselves. The nation of Israel has been judged. The nation will be no more. But once again, we see the mercy of the Lord. For the Lord says to the house of Israel, seek me and live. The nation's gonna die. But you yourself individually can live. What a gracious invitation amidst such a national judgment. The Lord says they can live and have life if only they would seek him. Now, in order to seek, this is what is implied, that one earnestly, in all that they can, tries to encounter the presence of God. To seek God is an active choice of our will and it involves the sweat of effort. We cannot say, I'm gonna go seek God and go up and climb up on a mountain and just sit down and be like, well, I'm waiting, God. First Chronicles 28.9 says, as for you, Solomon, my son, this is David speaking to Solomon, he says, know the God of your father and serve him wholeheartedly with a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and understands the intention of every thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you abandon him, he will reject you forever. What a wonderful promise that if we seek him, we will find him. It reminds me of what James says in the New Testament. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. We also have 2 Chronicles 15, 2. It says, so he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Asa and all Judah and Benjamin, hear me. The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you abandon him, he will abandon you. Again, the promise is repeated. And notice what it says there. If you are with the Lord, he will be with you. Many times people want the Lord to be with them, but the real thing is we have to be with him. And so God then tells them, seek me and live. And he says, do not seek Bethel. Do not seek or go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. And those three places have great significance throughout the books of Genesis, Exodus, all the way to Joshua, we see different things of this. Now, I'm not going to go into um, great detail of it. I believe that we've covered it with Bethel and Gilgal and um, Beersheba. But what he's saying is do not go to those places for the Lord is not there. If you want to be with the Lord, you have to be where he is. He's not there. He's not in them. Those were places that are now set up as false worship. He says, you cannot find me through the false. He says, Gilgal is certainly going to go into exile. And that brings with it a sort of irony. Gilgal was the place where Israel received the promised land. And now would be the place that is going into exile. Bethel now becomes Beth-Avon. 
The house of God is the house of nothing. He says it'll become empty. It'll become nothing without existence. And then again, we see the second time the Lord says, seek me and live. Or I will become like fire. Fire in the scriptures is a sort of judgment, a testing, a, a purification. What he's saying is, if you don't seek me, I will become judgment against you. you there, there's judgment. Everyone's going to face judgment. But if you seek the Lord, you have life. The judgment is certain for the nation, but each one, God is saying, you have a choice whether you'll repent and seek God or are you going to double down and die with the sinful nation? Once judgment comes, there's no one to extinguish it. Not even their glorified place of Bethel in which they sacrificed to Baal. When God said that 10% would be saved. He's speaking of a remnant. Those who would turn and seek the Lord are the spared remnant of mercy. And you might say, okay, there's judgment. There's the call to life. Why is there judgment? Why do we have to seek the Lord and live? Because the requirement is Righteousness. We have to be righteous or we face judgment. But the nation of Israel is sinful through and through. Man, since Adam, has been born in sin. Unrighteous from the start. And once you're unrighteous in one thing, you're unrighteous entirely. Because God has the perfection, the standard of perfection. And if that feels like a heavy weight, it's supposed to. But I'll get to the good news in a minute. Amos 5 verse 7, he continues on. God starts talking about his requirement of righteousness and why he's bringing judgment because they failed to line up with righteousness. He says, those who turn justice into wormwood also throw righteousness to the ground. The one who made Pleiades and Orion who turns darkness into dawn and darkens the day into night, who summons the water of the sea and pours it out over the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name, and he brings destruction on the, on the strong, and it falls on the fortress. Saying, I can hold to this standard. I'm God. I'm the one that made everything. I get to make the rules according to my goodness. He continues on, he says, they hate the one who convicts the guilty at the city gate. They despise the one who speaks with integrity. He says, therefore, because you trample on the poor and exact a grain tax from him, you will never live in the houses cut of stone that you have built. You will never drink the wine from the lush vineyards that you have planted. Therefore, those who have insight will keep silent at such a time for the days are evil Pursue good and not evil so that you may live. And the Lord, the God of armies, will be with you as you have claimed. Hate evil, love good. Establish justice at the city gate. Perhaps the Lord, the God of armies, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, the Lord, the God of armies, the Lord says, there will be wailing in all the public squares and they will cry out in anguish in all the streets. The farmer will be called on to mourn and professional mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards for I, 
will pass among you. The Lord has spoken. So Amos has laid out their options. Behind door number one, death and destruction. For anyone who wants to go down along with the nation at the hand of the Lord. The other option, life by way of turning and seeking God. They haven't been seeking God. They haven't sought to know God. They haven't sought to experience God. They haven't sought to live for God. God describes their way of living like this, that they have turned justice into wormwood, saying corruption permeates the courts. In the one place where righteousness and justice is supposed to prevail, it has become bitterly poisoned. When something was infected with the wormwood, wormwood was a uh, bitterness, but not only a bitterness, it was a poison. He says to do what was right and just on behalf of all is what is needed. That's, that's a crowning gem that distinguishes them as people with a special relationship with God. God expected it. Israel, or Isaiah 5.7 says, for the vineyard of the Lord God of armies is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, the plant he delighted in. He expected justice, but saw injustice. He expected righteousness, but heard cries of despair. He expected it. They knew that. Isaiah 28, 17 God says, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the mason's level. So that's my standard, justice and righteousness. Hail will sweep away the false refuge and water will flood your hiding place. Justice denotes a right ordered society, right? When, we, when justice prevails, everybody, like society grows, society prevails, it's when justice is no longer found, but we see all the injustice that society starts to fall, and we're seeing that today. Justice acknowledges the claim of all persons to full and equitable participation in society, especially in the legal system. In God's eyes, Israel ceased to follow the order and ceased to be a just society. So God is bringing judgment because as righteous and ordered as a righteous and ordered God who sovereignly ordered the universe, put constellations in the sky. I mean, look at the constellations of the stars in the sky. It's ordered. The one who turns darkness into dawn and darkens the day into night, he brings water from the sea and causes it to pour out over the surface of the earth. The God of order says, I will bring justice now. I'll bring judgment upon a people who have been running contrary to my order. And this God of order is strong enough to bring judgment and strong enough to rescue through judgment. And that's the choices here. He's worthy to be sought to find life. It says Israel hates the one who convicts the guilty. He hates the one who brings admonishment to those who are guilty of sin. The one who would say, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. You say, oh, we hate that guy. We've got to get rid of him. How dare he tell people to live right? 
says that they despise the one who speaks rightly. The one who says, hey, God doesn't want us doing this. God wants us doing this. Oh, look at that guy. Oh, I hate him. We need to get rid of him. He takes away all our fun. Therefore, for hating justice and righteousness, they will not dwell in the houses they have built. They will not drink of their vineyards of corruption. Righteousness is the requirement for life. So God says, pursue good and not evil so that you may live. He says, the Lord God of armies will be with you. You want to seek God? You want to find God? Seek righteousness. Pursue good. That's where you'll find God. Hate evil. Love good. Establish justice. And says, the Lord God of armies may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Now he's talking about Joseph. He brings down, so we know that 10 tribes separated from two tribes. So you have the 10 tribes, Joseph being uh, the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. But if you think about the 10 tribes, one name being brought out of it, it's 10%. It's, he says, this small remnant that I've talked about, if they seek good and not evil, if they seek me, Perhaps there will be grace for them. Because righteousness is the cure for the curse of judgment and of judgment for unrighteousness. That's the curse. When Adam sinned in the garden, God placed a curse upon the world because he says, I'm bringing judgment against this. The only cure for that is righteousness. The only way to turn again to righteousness is to seek the Lord and turn to him. Instead, of God being judge, he will turn and be defender. But since the nation is corrupted and righteous as a whole, they're going to be judged and taken into captivity. He says the land is going to be full of funerals because of the lack of righteous living. So devastating, there will be a shortage of professional mourners. Farmers will have to be hired to do the mourning. And I, th- I think uh, Amos just threw that in there because he was a farmer. And he's like, I'm going to have to mourn for all you. (laughs) Mourning and wailing will be heard in the vineyards, the vineyards that once were a place that um, was joyous occasion and, and a place of laughter and whatnot will now be only heard with mourning. And look at the promise from the Lord that he says there. He says, for I will pass among you. Some translations will say, I will pass through you. One time when coming out of captivity, the Lord passed over Israel. And now on their way to captivity, the Lord will pass through Israel them. You see in Exodus 12, when he was telling them how to observe the first Passover feast and how to be ready for their Exodus, he says, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I am the Lord. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The Lord will now pass through Israel on a similar errand of death and judgment. 
And the worst part for Israel, Amos is going to bring up now, their worship is so corrupted. Israel is crying out and praying and, and asking God for the day of the Lord. They're saying, we can't wait for the day of the Lord. Man, when the day of the Lord gets here, then all our enemies will be put under. Then we'll be, achieve the place where we're supposed to be. It, Amos says, woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. What will the day of the Lord be for you? It'll be darkness and not light. It'll be like a man who flees from a lion only to have a bear confront him. He goes home and rests his hand against the wall only to have a snake bite him. Won't the day of the Lord be darkness rather than light? even gloom without any brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fattened cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. House of Israel, was it sacrifices and grain offerings that you presented to me during the 40 years in the wilderness? That you have taken up Succoth, your king, and Kaiwan, your star god, images you have made for yourselves, so I will send you into exile beyond Damascus. The Lord, the God of armies, is his name. He has spoken. Amos says, woe to you, Israel. A woe is a strong word of caution. And he is expressing it to them on behalf of their desire to see the day of the Lord. It's a word of caution to the nation and a word of caution for all who would heed it. We have to understand, and they needed to understand then, corrupt worship will give you a false hope. Corrupt worship convinces us that we are good with God, that we are obedient that we're in relationship with God, all the while deceiving us because we're worshiping ourselves, our own desires, our own wants, our own path, our own everything. We are nowhere near the Lord. Israel was nowhere near the Lord. And the worst part about that is they didn't even know. The worst part for us when we have corrupt worship we don't even know it. Instead, they're believing, oh, God's going to deliver us. We're going to wait, and we want his coming. The whole while, not even knowing that they stand in judgment because of their corrupt worship. Great expectation, thinking it's going to be at the time of God culminating his vengeance against all her enemies. The day will secure her from danger and exalt her among the nations, the place where she deserves to be. Amos describes the day for them, and he says, that day is not going to be what you think it is. It won't be light. It's going to be darkness. He says, you think you're going to be saved because the day of the Lord has come, escaping the wrath of the nations, but find yourself in judgment of God. There'll be no haven from judgment. It'll be like a man who escapes a lion only to be confronted by a bear. And when he gets away from that, he gets home and he puts his hand on the wall for safety and is bit by a snake. He says, that day will be a snare to the nation for the Lord is angry 
with their corrupt worship. Look at how the Lord speaks about corrupt worship. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Their feasts that they had and their assemblies that they had, the, there, there were three they were commanded to keep. Unleavened bread, that's the Passover. They had the feast of harvest. And then they had the feast of ingathering or the feast of booths or the feast of tabernacles. They continue to offer sacrifice. They continue to worship, but God can't stand them does not accept them, has no regard for them. Even their songs torment the ears of God. And here's the thing, worship is corrupted when it's not combined with just and righteous living. It's like having a nice outside without a changed inside. Jesus described it like this. He would call the Pharisees whitewashed tombs whitewashed walls. I'm going to speak a little bit about this because we live in El Paso and um, if you're hiring anybody for construction work, you need to check out their credentials and everything because there are those who will put up subpar walls and when you put all the uh, texture and all the paint on the wall, it looks great. But when you go to hang something on that wall and it falls down, that's what a whitewashed wall is. It looks good. It's useless. God does not want ritual performance. He wants relentless commitment to justice and righteousness. It's easy to think that our religious ceremony is separate from how we treat one another. Israel thought, hey, as long as I go to temple, I'm good. It doesn't matter how I act the rest of the week. There, there are some uh, denominations, there are some Christians out there that believe that if you go to church on Sunday, you're fine for the rest of the week. It's not true. God doesn't only want us one day or even for one hour of our week. He wants our hearts all the time. It's easy to think our religious ceremony is separate. The trap is thinking that God should be happy because we give him his due. What do you want, God? I go to church. I read my Bible. I even sang that song I don't like. Without regard of justice and righteousness towards one another. Like at a funeral, hear the funeral in process. God is calling us to evaluate our life. Are we living to please God? Are we prepared to hear our own obituary? What would they say? Are we like Israel? Have we neglected Justice and righteousness? Here in America, we have a material comfort is available on a grand scale. But has our comfort been purchased at the expense or the ability of others to live above poverty? Have we neglected to support those that may not be as well off as us? Do we help perpetuate a justice system that's more accessible to the wealthy? or I'll just bring it even closer to home, do we place more emphasis on our worship than we do on living lives filled with justice and righteousness? And here's the test for corrupt worship. 
if religion is more ritual than it is relational, then the worship is corrupt. Jesus, when speaking to the woman at the well, told her that the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. That word truth, you know what that word truth implies? Justice and righteousness. We think it means, oh, now they'll finally know what it is that they're worshiping or how to do worship. It means that they will finally know truth through justice and righteousness. The Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus said in John 17, three, this is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God and the one whom you've sent, Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you don't have a righteous life, you haven't lived perfectly, you join the rest of us. I want you to understand that. No one has lived a life that is perfect and free from sin. But God has chosen to send his son to die on the cross for us to pay the penalty for our sin. We're gonna partake of communion here in a minute. And um, as we do that, it's a remembrance of the sacrifice he made because Jesus shed his blood on the cross, not just because our God is bloodthirsty, but because Blood, there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. He gave his life in exchange to pay the penalty for our sins. If we come to him and we believe in his name for salvation, what happens, our unrighteousness is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And as the blood covers our unrighteousness, it now makes our soul white as snow as if we'd never sinned. That's the promise of God that though our sins may be like scarlet, we will be white as snow. Clothed in the righteousness of Jesus so that we can fulfill that righteous requirement that God requires. That's why God says, turn to me and live. Seek me and live. Seek Christ and live. Judgment is coming, but seek the Lord and you will live. I'm going to give you a quick, I'm, I'm going to give an opportunity to receive the gospel. We're going to hand out the communion after that. If you're here this morning and you have not had your unrighteousness covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, I want you to know that God is here offering you the same choice. You can die with the nation and under the judgment, or you can seek me and live. He offered his son on the cross that any who would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus was sent into the world not to condemn the world of sin but because the world was condemned already but that they would find life in him. If that's you this morning, it's simple. You don't have to use any special words. Call out to God. Say, God, I need my unrighteousness covered. I know I'm sinful, but I know that Christ died on the cross to forgive me, and I ask him for forgiveness. Christ, will you forgive me? Come into my life, be my Lord, be my Savior. The promise from Jesus and from his own words is that as many as believe in him, to them he gives the right to become children of God. All who believe in him and his name 
though you might die, you will live. So as we hand out the communion, this is a uh, family meal. All who are children of God partake of this at the same table in the grace of God. And what it is, it's a remembrance of what Christ has done for us in that he has given us the ability to live righteously and pleasing to God, making it so that our worship is no longer corrupted. As you get the elements, I would ask that you hang on to them. We'll partake together in just a moment. If you have given your life to Christ, maybe somewhere along the lines, we started to separate our church life from our regular life. I've heard it asked of me this way before. If you were to be put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Are we living our life for Christ in such a way that the world can see Christ in us? Because when we do that, we're treating each other with that justice. We're treating each other with that righteousness, with that kindness that God asks of us. And no longer does our worship be separate from our life, but all of it comes together in a beautiful offering for God. the reminder of what God did for us while we were unworthy that drives us to seek not only to obey him but to please him Paul when he instituted the Lord's Supper he did it as a uh, copy if you will of what Christ did when Christ was with his disciples at the Last Supper. And so Paul writes, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take. In the same way, <clears throat> in the same way, he also took the cup after supper. He said, this cup is a covenant, new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take. And here's the promise of that. In Christ Jesus, we can look forward to his coming. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, as often as you take Christ into you, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, which is the future and our glorious hope, promise, and privilege. Father God, we come before you this morning. And Lord, we thank you for the promise that you have given us. Lord, you've, you've told us that, we'll, that judgment is coming. But we don't have to face it. If we would turn and seek you, that we would live. Help us to continue to seek you, Father God, and find life, life more abundant. In Jesus' name, amen.